This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. The following was home crafted and recorded on October 20th. Welcome to the Austin Chronicle show. My name is Kim Jones and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. We are deep in fall festival season where it's just wall to wall opportunities to watch movies, catch live music, hear authors talk, see art. So much creativity at our fingertips, both in person and virtually. So we're gonna start our show by hearing from music editor, Kevin Curtin, who wrote this week's cover story about a band or maybe two bands, he'll have to explain that. We're performing at next week's Levitation. Kevin, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on, big fan of the show. (laughs) Thanks, Kevin, appreciate it. Big fan of you too. So Kevin, you profiled a band for the Chronicle this week. I laughed out loud that you had 54 minutes of overwhelmingly unusable interview tape from your conversation. Tell us what we're talking about. Well, I think that's a lesson in journalism because it was such a fun interview. It was such a fun experience sitting down with Julie Keller and Cody Dossier. But when I actually listened back to it, I was like, oh yeah, this is funny, but it doesn't make any sense for a story. And I think it was still important for me to have that experience to get a real sense of their zany chemistry, but it was in all other matters, a complete waste of time. (laughs) So we're talking about a band who has another band. Same two people. Okay. Right. So the real band is being dead. And they're a band that has been on my radar since 2018. They're a duo that now recently has been performing with a bassist. So maybe technically a trio, but the artistic core is a duo. And they make great music and they sing really wonderfully together and they're also very funny and silly and in august they put out this record called gilgamesh 2 obviously a sequel to mankind's oldest recorded text the epic of gilgamesh and it was put out as zero percent apr which you could tell by their pictures on social media was just them wearing different clothes, but they acted as though it was a deep ruse that they had going on. But what I found out when I listened to it was that when they're doing tossed off home recorded music, that's just kind of meant to make each other laugh. And they don't think of it as the standard of their normal band, which in fact is really good. I found it just as likable and endearing in so many ways and very creative. So I wanted to write about it and Like I said, I interviewed them and it did not go well. It was pleasant, but it was just them lying to me the whole time and being funny. So I thought I wasn't going to write a story. And then they booked a show as 0% APR. And this strange scenario happened that you'll have to read about. And it occurred to me that, okay, this is the story. So it kind of became the story of a real band and a fake band told through two acts. It made me laugh when I was writing it. So hopefully it gives a sense of... How quirky and funny it is. Well, I don't want to spoil your story either, but I think the name to throw out there is that you had sort of described it as Andy Kaufman-esque. Just a little teaser. 
Well, hey, Kevin, why don't we play some music so our listeners can understand sort of what we're talking about here? Yeah, so the album starts with them on a, as if they're recording a podcast that's based on taking walks and talking about things like what are better, Skittles or M&Ms or conversations like that. And then they fall into a portal and they travel back through time. And soon they're in a variety of medieval scenarios. And this is one of those. So the song we are going to listen to is called Free to be Evil. Here's a little clip. So that's just a little taste, but it gives you a real sense of the sort of the bounciness, the sense of humor, which, and we should totally mention that they were so game for a cover shoot. Well, yeah, I mean, to be honest, I had thought of the idea of dressing them up in a medieval look or dark ages kind of vibe. And I reached out to our photographer and they had already talked about that long ago before this album had even happened. This is David Brendan Hall. David Brendan Hall. Yeah, they'd already discussed that. And he rented some cheap armor at Lucy in disguise and posed them in front of a house that looks like a castle. And it came out wonderful. So yeah, the album has a lot to do with people starting wars, torture, a lot of time spent in a dungeon. At times it's lighthearted when they have a track called Wet Chainmail Contest. But for the most part, it's about them being in a despairing time. I wrote that the record reminds me of pre-studio Daniel Johnston work because it's guitar and a loud organ and the singing is surprisingly good and the songs are weird. But there are moments on it where it is actually quite moving. And so this is one of those, it's kind of what I would consider to be a prayer poem And it's Julie singing and asking God why life is so difficult in this time. Okay, well, let's listen to another clip. And this is called God It's Us from 0% APR. That is some sad and spooky business there. That's 0% APR, who are not playing Levitation Fest on Thursday, October 28th, but... Their other outfit, Being Dead, is playing. Hotel Vegas. So what's the difference between the two bands? Being Dead fit into this. Being Dead is the exact same band. They consider 0% APR to be their farm team, where they put what they consider to be their lackluster material. But I would make the argument that it just has a different quality to it. Yeah, Being Dead doesn't perform 0% APR songs. And 0% APR doesn't perform being dead songs. But other than that, they're quite similar. (laughs) So yeah, you said being dead is going to be performing at Levitation next week. You know, I think that between the pandemic and things shifting and sort of the evolution from Austin Psych Fest, I think maybe some of our listeners might not really have a handle on what levitation is these days. Can you sort of do a quick and easy breakdown of it? Sure. I would characterize it as four days and nights of curated music playing out within Austin's downtown clubs. And They're individually ticketed shows. It's not like a festival where you have a wristband that gets you into everything. It's five to 10 shows happening a night with stacked lineups of national and international and local genre favorites. 
that you buy the tickets for independently. It's got everybody from Thundercat, you know, who's a bass virtuoso, plays, I would say, future R&B. It's got the Black Angels from Austin or, you know, the psychedelic, the modern psych torchbearers, and they're the co-founders of the festival. And you have the turn of the millennium garage rock favorites, the Hives, and then Black Midi from the UK, who are a heavy prog act, post-punk thing. So there's a real variety. There's artists with Hindustani, kind of meditative music and all kinds of stuff. But it's all wavy vibrations coming at you, I would say is a good way to put it. And it's a really fun lineup for music nerds, you know? You might look at these and say, how do all these bands fit together? But I think that if you really like a variety of underground music, this lineup will speak to you. All right, Kevin. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed your story about being dead. And I really enjoyed getting to know a band that was new to me. Thanks, Kevin. Well, thanks for having me on and I look forward to my next visit. All right, we are going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. back to the Austin Chronicle show on co-op community radio. I've asked our next guest, culture editor Richard Whitaker, to tell us a little bit about the movies to look forward to at this weekend's Austin Film Festival, and also just to talk to us about fall films in general. Richard, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure as always, Kim. So the Austin Film Festival has traditionally offered this terrific mix of first films and indie films and also big Oscar bait that it's getting its first look in Austin. Does that hold true to this year's lineup too? Oh, very much so. I always say the metric for AFF is the ratio of the number of films where I'm getting big studios going, well, we've got a a major release. We really want to start the Oscar buzz now mixed with filmmakers. I've literally never spoken to the press before how do I do this? And yeah, it's definitely that again this year. We have the full spectrum of first-time filmmakers with tiny little indies that they made in the backyard, right through to some really big Oscar contenders, starting obviously with a special screening of a film which actually opens this weekend, The French Dispatch. Wes Anderson's latest piece of whimsy and kind of his tribute to The New Yorker. And they put on a special screening for that just so festival attendees don't have to leave AFF and go to a cinema. But that's just the beginning of a a pretty packed eight days at the fest. And we should point out that Wes Anderson has sort of a longtime relationship with Austin Film Festival. And he, you know, he attended UT and also Polly Platt was one of his early champions and Polly Platt, who is now deceased, but legendary artist, production designer, producer who worked on Peter Bogdanovich's films. was also a huge part of AFF. Anyway, sorry, pause for historical detour. History is an important part of AFF. The opening night film on Thursday is The Same Storm, which is the latest film by Peter Hedges. So of course, by the time this show is airing on Friday, it will have already happened. But presumably this is a movie that's coming down the pike eventually. 
That is one of the releases for later this year, I do believe. They haven't set oh, a date yet. But I mean, if you're interested, you can read about it in this week's issue. We actually talked to Peter because he's got a long relationship with Austin. He wrote What's Eating Gilbert Grape, which shot locally, and he keeps coming back. And he's going to be around for the weekend, as far as I know. So if you're at the festival, you may well see him around. Another regular face that you might recognize around Austin, Sonny Carl Davis. His history goes right back to the earliest days of Austin cinema with his appearance in Eagle Pennell's The Whole Shooting Match. He's been a strange character because he's had so many small parts in big films and big parts in small films, as he puts it, but he's never had leading roles. And his new film, Buck Alamo, which makes its Austin debut, is his first real leading role since The Whole Shooting Match. And it's this beautiful kind of look back at an Austin that's disappearing, but it's not through the kind of rose-tinted glasses of the Cosmic Cowboy era great. It's a guy who's made a lot of mistakes in his life, and it's a phenomenal performance. It's one of my favorites of the year. And of course, I think if people see Sonny Carl Davis's face, there's an immediate, oh, that guy. I guess most widely was in the Richard Linklater's commercials targeting Ted Cruz. Sonny Carl Davis was the face of that. He's very much hidden in this, though. There's, he's putting a fantastic moustache, the kind of guy you see at the end of the bar at any of the old honky-tonks in town, like desperate for somebody to talk to him, but you know, always managing to put people off. Phenomenal performance. But that's just you know, one of a multitude of, of local films that we've got this year, including an addict named Hal, which is from a first-time filmmaker. It's a film about addiction, beautifully done, mostly UTRTF students involved in the making of that. That'll be uh, screening this weekend as well. Yeah, we've got a lot of kind of more unusual films playing this year, including Memoria, which is now infamous because this is going to be one of the few times you'll be able to see this film ever. Because the director, whose name I am not going to even attempt to make an error with, has decided that the only place it will ever be seen is in the cinema. He's struck a print, he struck a DCP, and it will never be released digitally. It's Tilda Swinton playing a woman who hears a mysterious sound, and it kind of starts to control her life, and she becomes obsessed with it. And this is going to be one of the few screenings of it that you'll have a real chance to see that. He said it's basically just going to be off in repertory from now till the end of time. So this is the kind of thing that makes festival screenings really special. It's, you know, Literally, this may be the only chance you'll ever get to see this film in Austin, so fully recommend on that. Boy, that really flies in the face of sort of the way, before we started, we were talking about, oh, I guess we're going to have to talk about the death of movie going in actual theaters. This is bucking that trend for sure. Making a big deal out of the actual in-theater experience, which I know you and I both adore. Yeah. Well, I do feel that the death of cinema has been widely overstated and often lied about by people who have a vested interest in pretending that it is an inevitable thing. But, you know, we've just come out of a weekend where Halloween Kills took the same kind of numbers it would have taken before the pandemic. You know, we've got Eternals coming up. Every distributor who's putting out something on their streaming platform is still going, oh, no, 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 we're still going to put it out in theaters because we know what makes the money. And these are industries that are built around scale. So, you know, I don't think it's going away anytime soon. And the fact that people have been so desperate to get back to in-person events like AFF proves that they're not ready to give up on in-person, going to the theater, 
sitting down in a darkened room waiting for the projector to go on and that big screen to light up, they're not done with that yet by any stretch of the imagination. Well, let's sort of cast an eye on the rest of the movies that are coming out. It's Oscar season. I don't want to say we're moving away from the big tent poles because as you said, Eternals is opening in a week. There will still be Marvel movies and, you know, which I'm always happy to see those as well, but... <laughs> But we're getting a lot of sort of the adult dramas, the indie films. Some of them are sneaking at Austin Film Festival and others are doing day and dates. They're showing up in theaters the same times they're showing up on streaming services. So tell me some of the things that you're looking forward to. Well, one of the big ones that's also playing AFF is Spencer, which is Pablo Lorraine, his look at the life of Princess Diana Spencer. Always going to be controversial, but a lot of people are talking about Kristen Stewart as a possible Oscar contender. This may be the one where she finally nails down that particular reward. That's coming out November 5th, which is the same weekend as one of my favorite films out of this year's Fantastic Fest, The Beta Test, which is Jim Cummings' latest one, which is basically Jim making sure he will never get hired by a major studio again. It's this full-throated attack on how the film industry and agents in the film industry do everything they can to make everybody's life miserable and make as much money as possible. But there's also this incredible commentary on social media. That thing is one of the best satires of the year. That thing is just plain glorious. I think that's going to appear on a few year-end lists. Coming up in November, we've also got King Richard, which is Will Smith's biopic. He does love his biopic about Richard Williams, the father of Venus and Serena Williams, a lot of early buzz about that as an Oscar contender. And that comes out the same weekend as another AFF Oscar contender, which is Come On, Come On, which is the new one by Mike Mills starring Joaquin Phoenix. Again, talking about Joaquin in Oscar contention, which not surprised by because he's always great. Even in some films that aren't as good, he's always the best thing about them. So I have to jump in here and say a word about Mike Mills, just because I think he's a vastly underrated filmmaker who really excels at telling family stories that are touching, but not in a manipulative way and just kind of have a, a weird way of looking at the world. Beginners and 20th Century Women were his last two films that one was sort of about, they're, they're all autobiographical and Beginners was as bad as Dad. 20th Century Women was about his mom. And then this new one is about a brother and sister. And it just looks like it's totally up my alley. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and a different kind of family drama we're looking at. Ridley Scott, who I think is determined to make as many films as possible before he gets too old. Although most people have said making them at his age is too old. And he's proved them wrong. Uh, he's got House of Gucci coming out. And so even though The Last Jewel hasn't done phenomenally at the box office, I think him taking on crime, intrigue, passion and murder in the fashion industry, I think everybody's waiting on that one. So if you like horror, which I know you really don't, KJ, then yet another stab at a Resident Evil film coming later this year, which I know a lot of horror fans are very excited about with Resident Evil Welcome to Raccoon City. That franchise the films are nothing like the games, and everybody is basically finally going, oh, this one actually looks like the games. What a novel idea, going to the source material. That's kind of an ingenious concept. And you did mention The Eternals, which opens next month. This is going to be a very complicated one for Marvel. The early reviews, I mean, it's already one of the longest of the Marvel films. It's based on a property that most people don't know, including a lot of comics fans. It's pretty obscure. 
And it's Chloe Zhao, who has not tackled this kind of thing. Well, to say that is a complete understatement. I mean, she's gone from Nomadland to a tentpole Marvel title. I think a lot of people are going to be interested to see just even what that looks like, because it's such a change of pace for her. So that's kind of a big one. And later in the year, obviously, talking about real you know, Oscar contenders that people are already going, well, they'll be in there somewhere. Spielberg's West Side Story is coming out later this year, which hopefully can break the curse that has hit every single musical this year. <laughs> Nobody's managed to break out and have the kind of success. I think everybody thought In the Heights would do it. Just didn't happen. Dear Evan Hansen did okay, but nobody really turned out in the droves they expected. Is West Side Story the one that'll actually do it? And that's, you know, as you pointed out, we've already been surfing this wave of musicals and now we've got West Side Story, which got bumped from last year. We've also got Lin-Manuel Miranda, his, you know, the Hamilton genius has his directorial debut, Tick, Tick, Boom, about the Rent, the guy who tragically died before Rent came out, Jonathan Larson. And then we also have Cyrano, the one that I think has people pretty excited. Cyrano, that's come out of nowhere on a lot of people's radar. I don't think anybody was talking about it. And the first trailer dropped this week and everybody said like, oh, hang on, this looks really good. And Peter Dinklage is Cyrano, so no dubious extensions on the nose this time around. It's a very interesting, different take, but it looks phenomenal. And that's sneaking in just at the end of the year on New Year's Day. But the big Christmas release this year very seasonal. The Tragedy of Macbeth. Joel Cohen finally directing by himself after his brother Ethan has gone. I'm really pretty much over filmmaking, which you cannot blame him for because it's hard work. But, you know, we're talking about Oscar buzz, Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand as Macbeth and Lady Macbeth already getting a lot of word. So that's one I think everybody's excited about. And just the cinematography is already unreal on that thing. It's just this gorgeous, classic Hollywood black and white. The blacks are like the bottom of the ocean and the whites are almost silvery. I think there's a lot of excitement about that one. Well, Richard, we're just about out of time and I can't believe we haven't even talked about Jane Campion and Paul Thomas Anderson have movies coming out in the next few weeks and months. Maggie Gyllenhaal has her directorial debut. We didn't mention The Matrix Resurrections. Lana Wachowski's <laughs> Return to the Matrix series. There's just so much to look forward to. And it's a packed close of the year. And I think that, again, refutes this idea that the cinema is dead. As I said, every time anybody says that, you know, I say, go check the pulse. So Because it, it seems pretty healthy from where I'm sat. Richard, thank you so much for coming on and getting us really excited about what is in store for all of us, whether you're watching at home or watching in the movie theaters. And I know we'll have you on again soon. Absolutely. My pleasure. Looking forward to it. And that is a wrap for another episode of the Austin Chronicle show. My guests today were Kevin Curtin and Richard Whitaker. The show was engineered by Bob Daly and Andrew Sullen. And Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson wrote our theme music. Serenading us out today is Lavender Country, whose 1973 album is the first gay-themed album in country music history. Lavender Country will perform this weekend at Austin's first queer country music festival, the Outlaw Pride Fest at the Rustic Tap. And you can find more info about that online, including an interview at austinchronicle.com. So this is I Can't Shake the Stranger Out of You by Lavender Country. We will see you next week. <laughs>